0: Hello and welcome to Talk Mental Wellbeing in Times of Stress, I'm Fanula Sweeney. The COVID-19 virus is here to stay for a while unfortunately, for how long, we don't know. And it's that uncertainty as much as anything else that causes people to worry, almost as much as the deadly impact the virus is having on our family, friends, healthcare systems and economies. So each week, for the foreseeable future, I'll be speaking to Professor Ian Robertson, neuroscientist and co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute at Trinity College Dublin, about what happens in our brains during times of mental pressure and how we can better cope during this time of collective stress. Ian, thank you for joining me.
1: Hello, Fanula.
0: I'm conscious that some parts of the world are just now coming to terms with the impact of COVID-19, yet for others, they've been living with it for some months now. Can you talk us through the various stages that people and their brains particularly go through in coming to terms with stress, self-isolation, and particularly over a period of time?
1: The thing about stress is the perception that the demands made on you exceed your abilities to cope with them, and the resulting emotion is anxiety. And anxiety is a great disruptor of our thinking and our memory because it calls for our attention because we feel under threat. And what that does is to take away mental resources from solving everyday problems. It makes us less efficient, less good, less clear-headed in solving problems So it means the problems can seem really insurmountable and we feel unable to cope with them. So anxiety and stress, they compound themselves. So it's very important when we're dealing with completely new situations of that, where we have to solve new problems about how to survive, how to create a new way of life in isolation, how to look after our loved ones. We have to try and clear away mental space to allow us to address these problems the best way we can. And that requires us to actually understand our anxiety and get some control over it.
0: So how does the brain actually work? People might be self-isolating for 14 days, and then on day five, they suddenly go, I don't feel great. But then on day six, pick themselves up. What's going on then?
1: Well, we work by structure and by goals normal everyday routine of life supplies us with goals and supplies us with structure. And so we don't have to think too much about what we're going to do today or what we're going to do this week. It's kind of supplied for us. But then suddenly something like this comes along and sweeps the ground from under us. And there is no structure. And therefore, it's very easy for us to feel lost, for us to feel aimless, for us to feel very low mood because we're not getting the satisfaction, if you like, of just delivering on everyday tasks and everyday duties. And above all, we're not meeting people in regular, informal ways that we do in work and elsewhere, so we can feel a bit isolated. So when we go down like that in five days, it's partly because we're not getting the satisfaction of interactions with other people, the satisfaction of tasks completed, the satisfaction simply of familiar comforting routine. In order to climb back up, we have to create that routine artificially. We have to be conscious about what we're doing when in a way that we don't have to be in normal times. And I'm guessing that when the person comes up after that sixth day, as you described as is they're suddenly doing just that. They're saying, hold on a minute. I'm not going to let myself be pulled down here. I'm going to set myself a goal. I'm going to dig that little bit of garden outside. Or if you don't have a garden, you know what? I've been saying it for years, I need to reorganize that cupboard. I'm going to do that. And so it's simple tasks, a clear goal, Achieving that goal will generate a feeling of satisfaction that actually acts like a mini antidepressant in the brain. So you can control your emotional state by structuring your life, achieving even small goals and substituting with your own artificial new structure what's missing because of the change in life.
0: It's possible to feel alone when you're in the company of people 24-7 for a week or two weeks inside four walls. It's also obviously possible to feel isolated when one is self-isolating on one's own. Are you saying that a simple act of mentally focusing on something can help each of us behave in a more positive way?
1: Yes. A wandering mind, science has shown us, tends to be an unhappy mind. Particularly in situations of uncertainty. So, if we let our minds wander too much, what will they wander to? fears will i get the coronavirus will my loved ones get it what's going to happen to the economy what's going to happen to my job our minds will wander if we're not focused and that's why the structure of giving ourselves tasks even if it's a mundane and not particularly pleasant task to the extent that we manage to focus our attention on that it will be a wonderful protector against our minds wandering to alarming thoughts alarming memories And expanding that anxiety, which so disrupts our ability to solve problems.
0: Now, there are some fellows listening to this in parts of the world where they're already under immense pressure due to lack of employment or resources, finances. Is there anything that they can do beyond that, a simple technique or practice that helps even for a few moments to lift them out of a dark place?
1: Can I just say, first of all, I speak from a position of immense privilege there, and I don't want to talk down to people about how to cope with very, very tough situations, but I can say this. The research shows that there is a relationship between socioeconomic hardship and levels of mood and depression. But that relationship falls away in people who have a sense of control over their lives, who feel that they've at least got some control, even over the small things, if not over the big things. So critically important as an antidote to this feeling of being overwhelmed, this feeling of constant struggle against adversity, against just making a living, if you can just create some control over your life. For instance, you were talking about relationships, about living with people. I mean, the most important things to us are other people. And yes, if we're cooped up in a small house together for 14 days, the chances of emotional tension growing, of people getting annoyed with each other's habits is considerable. So what's critical here is to actually talk about it. communication. We're in a new situation now. We have to talk about how we live. Let's just talk about, and it can be about simple, practical things. Let's not spend all the time in the same room together. How about trying to get a little bit of that artificial structure that I was talking about earlier? But communication, talking through with another person, if you can get a response from that other person, that gives you a sense of control. And that sense of control will be a huge antidote to stress and anxiety and helplessness.
0: Can we talk a little bit about grief? for people listening who have a loved one who's ill, in ordinary times, they would be able to visit that person in hospital. But now, if this person has COVID-19, we're hearing of video links being set up so that families can say goodbye remotely and be virtually with a relative or a friend who's dying in hospital. And then we know that cultures have different rituals for grieving the dead, and these have evolved over centuries. So how do we grieve for a loved one who succumbed to COVID-19 when we can't play out those rituals of saying goodbye that are in many ways designed to bring us some form of closure?
1: This is such a tough question. I mean, grief, And loss are just awful things to deal with. And as you say, we have different cultures of different ways of helping us do this. But in this situation, we have to become innovative, even in these terrible times of grief. What we know about grief is just talking about it with the loved one who is dying, even if it's through a video link, and not being afraid to talk about it, and then talking about it after the loved one has died with The other members of the family and with friends. To a certain extent, people are immortal to the extent that they live on as information in other people's minds. And if we exchange that information, if we reminisce about that person, and even before that person dies, if we help them to reminisce, then we will, to a certain extent, keep that person alive in our minds. And that can be enormously healing, the whole idea of telling stories, of nice stories, of funny stories. Do you remember when? And if we can do that both before the person dies and after they die, it can be enormously healing to go through this, to recreate that person, if you like, in a purely informational format in people's memories and stories.
0: And of course, it might seem that one would have to be privileged to have a video link. But of course, with mobile phones these days, most of us have them and have that ability. But what you say brings me to talking about the human spirit. It can move us in ways that surprise us even when we are under immense pressure. How much is that? And this may be (laughs) a tricky question to answer. How much of this is about the human spirit and how much of it is about mental positivity? How are they connected?
1: The human mind is a remarkable thing. The human brain is the most complex entity in the known universe. The nature of consciousness is one of the great unsolved mysteries of science. We do not understand its relationship with the universe. So it's an enormous privilege to be conscious and to be aware. And there is huge freedom within that consciousness, within the human mind, to travel in imagination, to imagine things that do not yet exist, and then to work towards creating them. And that's what I would call the human spirit, that freedom to create realities that may not yet exist in the external world, but you can make them exist. And that's why if you connect up these brains, these minds, these consciousnesses, collective consciousness has achieved remarkable things in humanity. That's the source of our civilization and of our humanity. So yes, the human spirit will triumph over these terrible times. Individual suffering will be great as we do this, but collectively as humanity, we are going to be able to face up to these problems and solve them.
0: And the final question about the relationship between the human spirit and values, values that we're hearing so much about now, empathy, kindness, integrity, bravery. Can you talk to us a little more about that connection?
1: The wonderful thing about values is that they're self-reinforcing. Some people get caught up in materialist values or values that are driven by fear and self-protection. And of course, we need a bit of that. But what we know is that if people can be altruistic, empathic, if people can experience gratitude for even the small things that they have, it makes them much more happy than they would be if they don't, if you like, anchor themselves in these values. So our values, if you like, are the spiritual base for the human spirit, and they have driven humanity in remarkable ways, as, of course, the wrong values have under certain circumstances, too. But the great thing about what you're saying there is that we can, if you like, selfishly benefit from exercising these values, and also other people can benefit if we adhere to them
0: we leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Ian, Ian Robertson is co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute at Trinity College Dublin, which along with GBHI at University of California, San Francisco, trains Atlantic Fellows for Equity and Brain Health. It's one of seven equity-focused Atlantic Fellows programs around the world. And for more information, you can visit www.atlanticfellows.org. I'm Fanula Sweeney, and you've been listening to Talk Mental Well Being in Times of Stress.